if I have a finite amount of attention, what am I going to put it to? And I really want to try to put that towards things that bring me joy and things that bring people together in joyful ways. Hi, I'm Bon Ku, the host of Design Lab. I search for ways to live healthier lives through design. I'm a physician and an educator, and I love to explore how the worlds of design, art, science, and health intersect. In this episode, you're going to meet Emily Pilliton. Emily is a trailblazer. She's the founder and executive director of Girls Garage. It's a nonprofit based in Berkeley, California. Her goal is to build a community of fearless builder girls. Emily is also an author. In her new latest book, she shares her expertise on how to build and to repair. Her book is one of my latest, greatest favorites. And there's even a documentary about Emily called If You Build It. How cool is that? You learn how Emily moved to a rural community in North Carolina, where she worked with a group of high school students to reimagine their community through design. In our conversation, you will learn about Emily's journey, her childhood love of building, and her decision to study architecture, and how she discovered that making has the power to change people and build communities. Making is a fundamental human activity. Maybe you'll be inspired to take on some projects where you build something with your own hands. Please rate and review this podcast. Leave comments. This really helps us out a lot. Making the show is an iterative process and we really want it to become better. Thanks for listening, for your support, and here's my conversation with Emily Pilliton. I, I love your book, Emily. It's so Thanks. great. Oh my God. Thank you for posting about it too. It's, uh, uh, yeah, it's been a whole <laughs> adventure getting this thing into the world. But. I love the hand-drawn pictures of the tools and everything. Who did that? Oh, this wonderful illustrator friend of mine, Kate Bingham and Burt. She lives in Portland and she has this wonderful style that is just so joyful and I love her work because it's it can be very technical, but you just look at it and you can't not smile. So I, I knew I wanted to work with an illustrator who could interpret things in a way that felt accessible and fun and not scary, but like still capture the really important technical features of certain tools. It's so cool. I'm looking at like these pictures of the jigsaw and the welder and the angle grinder and I love it. I love it. So I am not a handyman. I actually hate that term handyman because I'm married and my wife is the quote unquote handyman of the house. Her dad owned a hardware store in Camden, New Jersey. So she knows all about tools and hardware and plumbing. And when something breaks, she's the one who actually fixes it. And I don't, I don't know how to do any of that crap. So I found that this was like I was like, I need to read this book. This book is so applicable to me as a dude who doesn't know what any of these um, names are for, for for any of these things. So, thank, yeah, that's thank great you for this. Yeah, your wife is your handy ma'am. Yes, yes, <laughs> and I love how this dispels some of these stereotypes that we have about women. I have a teenage daughter who's 14. She calls me out on it all the time. I have I'm perpetuating stereotypes because I have an 11 year old son as well. And then I'm guilty of using phrases like, dude, stop throwing like a girl. Right. And it's, it's terrible. Like, like that we just routinely do this. Don't even like think about it. And, um, and I'm just kind of curious why, why did you name it girl's garage? 
Oh, yeah. The, the normalization of certain language. We talk a lot about the use of the term you guys and mm-hmm. how most people think that's a gender neutral term. And yet we've just sort of become immune to the male default. And so the name of the organization is Girls Garage. The name of the book is Girls Garage. And I just wanted to sort of use the term girls unapologetically. And also, I think we're in a moment where we're redefining gender, we're redefining intersectionality and identity in so many ways. And so when I say girls, I don't just mean one type of girl. I mean that as an expansive term that Mm. includes all kinds of girls, that includes non-binary youth, that includes gender expansive youth. And so I think it's just, especially on a book cover and on a book cover about tools, I I like the idea that, you know, when I was a kid and and even now you walk into a hardware store and most of the how-to books have old mustachioed white men on them. And, you know, those books are not titled old mustachioed white men build stuff, but that's kind of what it's communicating. And Mm -hmm. so I wanted to just put girls right on the cover and say, this is a book for girls about tools and building. And so Girls Garage is the name of your organization, but it's a physical space as well, right? It is. I'm sitting in it right now. Oh, so. <laughs> cool. Can you just des- can you describe the space? Sure. So Girls Garage is a 3,600 square foot space in West Berkeley, California, and it is a sort of two story open plan workshop. The downstairs space is a wood shop and carpentry shop, and we have sort of an open maker space that we use large tabletops for things like screen printing visual art. We have a laser etcher. We do some welding, uh, MIG welding downstairs also. And then upstairs, actually just yesterday, we have a new risograph printer. And so we're converting our upstairs classroom. Wait, I don't classroom. know what that is. What, what is that? <laughs> a risograph. It's, uh, it's also new to me. We are using the risograph printer in a print shop capacity to make posters and other graphic art. And the risograph is sort of like a uh, copy machine mm-hmm. combined with the the process of screen printing. So it allows you to make multiples of different layers of colored prints very quickly. Cool. Yeah. So the space is, you know, it's, it, it's lovely. It's a wonderful place to be. Visually, I, I tried to think about the design of the space in a very welcoming, open, creative, and exciting way. I want girls to walk in and and really like feel that they belong here. That does not mean that the walls are pink. That means that in our reception area, every girl who's ever been here has her name laser etched on a wooden tile, and that's in the reception area. So oh, your name that's is so physically cool. part of the space. Wow. Um, it also means that we have artwork everywhere that's made by girls, that speaks to girls. I'm looking at a poster right now that says, You belong to yourself first. And another that says, Viva la Mujer, which means long live the woman, women in Spanish. And so I, I think there's, there are visual cues that also say to girls, this is, this is a place that was made for you. That's, that's so important. I teach at one of the oldest medical schools in the country. And when you go into my medical school and a lot of medical schools, you see paintings of professors and they're all old white men. And that it's not welcoming, if, especially if you're a person of color, you're female, and you go in and they're just painting of the old guard. And I think it's important to have those visual cues that are welcoming at an institution, at an educational facility or educational 
place and it's, it sends a message. Totally. Yeah. And it's really, it's sort of subconscious, but then once you see it, you don't unsee it. We're, mm. we're having the same conversation about, you know, more broadly, like who our statues and monuments are. And yeah. if you don't see yourself or your own story celebrated in a public arena, then, you know, you don't, you don't know what's possible. Yeah. So I'm, I'm kind of curious, you look a little bit like me, you're half Chinese and your dad is French. Is that yes. right? Yes. Uh-huh. What What is it like being biracial and doing this type of work? Because you, you've been doing it for a while. You've been doing it before makerspaces were called makerspaces, right? Yeah, I have. I mean, I've been doing this work with young people, design build work since 2008. We're going into our 13th year. But it's funny. I feel really blessed to be in a moment right now where we have a much broader vocabulary for how we talk about our identities Certainly as a young person, I did not have that Mm. vocabulary, nor was I raised in a place um, where I was encouraged to celebrate that. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, my family is incredible. Both of my parents, I I think, really like raised me to think about things critically. But I did grow up in an almost entirely white community. Mm. And so for a long time, I thought of my racial makeup as as something that was a source of difference and therefore that made me less than. And it took a long time for me to realize, like, even the term I'm half Asian, I'm half Chinese, I'm half French. Well, no, I'm actually 100% both of those things. Yeah. And so just to, to be able to embrace, like, every part of myself, that both my grandfathers were engineers, both my grandmothers were librarians, I'm also 100% both those things. Mm. And I think this is also a part of the role of Girls Garage, the space and the community, is to show young girls that when we say girls in STEM or women in the trades or whatever, that doesn't mean one type of woman and it doesn't mean one type of job. It means all different types of women. And each of those individual women is also a multitude of things. And so I think like the plurality of our identities is really an important thing to share with young women. And that's what I also tried to portray in the book with the profiles of builder women. That uh, Yeah, I love those profiles. Yeah. There's like a there's a 15-year-old girl who's part of our program here, and there's a 95-year-old woman who was a welder in World War II and everything in between. It, it's amazing. that I love that you do that because people don't have those images, right? If they don't see that, they, they can't relate. And that whole world becomes closed to them. Yeah. I mean, we can't be what we can't see. And as a child, my my female heroes were my mom and my grandmothers. And I love my mother. And my grandmothers were really the first fierce female makers that I knew. But in terms of industry and jobs, I studied architecture, but I didn't know a single female architect. I didn't know what, what? that meant. I didn't wow. know like... What does that job actually look like? What is your day like? I didn't know any of those things. And I think if I had been able to see to see that uh, in person and also the breadth of what's possible within the field of architecture, it's not just one thing. It's not mm. just AutoCAD. Um, that would have been pretty incredible. And you studied architecture at Berkeley as an undergrad. Then you went to Chicago for grad school for architecture. I did. I and went to the School of the Art Institute of Chicago. And then you were a furniture maker at one point. Is that right? That was all kinds of things. I mean, <laughs> yeah, I'm kind I was... of yeah, curious about this <laughs> journey that you have from studying architecture and then and then 
starting Girls Garage. Yeah, it's so nice to look at things in hindsight, right? Because now I can make sense of it all. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I, I studied architecture because as a young person, specifically in high school, I fell in love with the act of building. And that's everything from like making forts with my sisters out of sofa cushions and tree houses in the woods to actually building on a construction site. I was very lucky to participate in a, a service trip with teenagers from all around the country when I was in high school. And I spent a summer in Belize and I lived in a, a small town there. And along with some of the local masons and carpenters, I learned how to build. I learned how to hand mix and pour thousands of pounds of concrete. I learned how to frame a roof. I learned how to do wood math, like how to engineer a structure so it wouldn't fall down. And that was the, that was truly like the seminal moment that helped me understand not just I liked the idea of architecture, but I liked the actual act of it. And then that's why I went into architecture in the first place. But to make a long story very short, as I progressed through architecture school and eventually into the world and industry of architecture mm -hmm. and design, I felt like that, that thing I, I experienced in Belize, that feeling of, of power and of impact and of community was not part of the industry in the way I expected it to be. Mm. And so fast forward to the project, which was a farmer's market I built with my first class of high school students in rural North Carolina. That project was my way of getting back to that original feeling of the power of architecture. And it is about youth. It's about young people having a voice. It's about building stuff with your own hands, leaving something behind that changes and, and helps a community thrive. And so, you know, I dabbled. I've, I've always been a builder. I built furniture because I wasn't able to build things in my corporate job. So I built furniture in my attic. I've never been able to get away from the act of building stuff. Um, amazing. I, I love the project that you did in rural North Carolina. I mean, you, you actually moved out there and lived out there for years from the Bay Area. Is that right? I did. I moved to a town of about 2,500 people in eastern North Carolina. Yep. And... It seems that all your projects that you undertake embody this principle of co-design. And can you explain what that is and what, why that's important to you? Sure. Yeah. I, the, the term co-design, I, I think, is based on the principle of uh, that instead of designing for a community or a client, that we're designing both with and by that client. And in fact, client is not even the right word. It's expanding who gets to wear the hat of designer. Mm -hmm. And so in North Carolina, that looked like me running a design firm with teenagers. And I had 13 high school students who were my co-designers. And, you know, what did I know? I had moved from the Bay Area. I don't live in rural North Carolina. I lived there for three years, but I'm certainly not an expert. And so it was important for me to step back and say to my class of students, you are the designers of your own community. And part of this, I have to just be honest, this is a little bit about shock value too. Like I want that town to look at the young people in their community and say, oh my God, this is our source of creative capital. Like that beautiful building was built by 16 and 17 year olds. Mm -hmm. Have we been underestimating our young people? So it's partly about sharing who gets access to making creative decisions and giving that up as a designer with a capital D, which I don't even like that term, but also like changing the way people look at the built environment and questioning who's responsible for making it. That it's not some, you know, old guy in an ivory tower. It's this group of high school students who are 16 and 17 and, and have all the best ideas. 
Yeah, I love how you frame high school students as a valuable resource to the community. And we don't often see high school students as that valuable resource. Did you get some pushback from the community? We got plenty of pushback, but for other reasons. You know, interestingly, I think any time you just give young people the microphone, you know, I, I dare anyone to tell them to be quiet. That's just not acceptable. I think that's actually the best thing we can all do right now. And there is something about that age, about high school, where you have enough in your arsenal to have strong ideas, to be able to defend them, but you still have this unbridled hope about what you want the world to be. And it's just such a sweet spot in the course of a lifetime. And I just love seeing teenagers completely turn all of our ideas on our head and then prove that things are possible. Have you seen girls uh, change th- throughout the process? And what what does that look like? Oh, my gosh. I get so emotional when I talk about my girls. Um, you know, I, I have a few girls who just graduated from high school this year. This was our first full graduating class of seniors in high school who have been with us for years since they were 9, 10, 11. They've been with us for, you know, up to seven years. And... Uh, It's interesting to think about it in terms of how they change. I think of it as like a fortification. Like they come to us as these bright-eyed nine-year-olds who want to learn how to weld. And they leave as 17-year-olds going into whatever field. Sometimes it's engineering or design or architecture. Sometimes it's um, art or medicine or whatever. Mm. But they leave with this like completely certain idea that they have the power to do what they want and to do that thing for the benefit of others. I'm always blown away by how girls come here and they're never in it for their own self-service. It's like, I want to learn this thing so that I can blank. And it's always about making the world better. So the most wonderful thing for me to get to to witness and bear witness to is is just who they are as nine-year-olds and becoming more of that as they Mm. get older and giving them more and more tools. Maybe first it's a MIG welder and then maybe next it's a chainsaw and you're on top of a roof. Like, I I just want to give them all the tools to amplify the things that they already are. Can you describe, like, how is it that process of making or building, how does that change them? Like, what's that relationship? I mean, so many people have written about how cognitively and emotionally we're connected to to making and building. I mean, I think of books like Shop Classes, Soulcraft, and some of the writing by um, Peter Korn about why we build, why we make. And I think at a very fundamental human level, Mm -hmm. there is a deep satisfaction and pride in having the ability to shape your own world. I think for girls specifically... There's also a component of how we control our environments and how we use our bodies. One of my favorite things to see girls do is move lumber because, you know, to see like a 15 year old carrying a sheet of plywood is just, it it fundamentally changes the way you think about your own body and your own strength. Oh, that's fascinating. So part of it is that, like anytime you use a tool, you're multiplying the power of your own body. And that metaphorically means so many things to young girls who maybe have something to say, but they think they have to whisper it. And then you use a chop saw and you understand that you can do something that's so far beyond what your own body is capable of. And then that thing you wanted to whisper, you're actually okay to scream. I'm not a maker or a builder, but when I do some projects that require me to 
shape or make with my hands. There's something elemental about it. And I like what you're saying that it's very human to do that. And what what would be your advice to those listening who are, are maybe more like me and who aren't great with tools or just who don't have jobs where they can build and maybe they're stuck behind a desk all day on Zoom calls and typing emails, which a lot of people are doing during the pandemic. Like, how can people do that? Um, I would say go to the hardware store and find some scrap wood. I always say that a drill and a driver set are the first tool you should probably buy, maybe some kind of saw, and just start playing around safely. But I, I don't know. Like, I think there is this mental barrier like, oh, I don't know how to X, so I sh- can't start the, th- you know, there's like a, a hurdle in most people's mind about like, I don't know how to build, so therefore I can't start building. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. It's very different than like cooking. I'm a horrible cook, but I'll go into my kitchen and throw anything in a pot. It might not end up well. And so I wish that there wasn't that sort of mental barrier. And then Yeah, it, there totally is that mental yeah. barrier. I mean, there is a safety component, of course. Like you can't just, you know, go flinging a chainsaw all over the place, but there really is no wrong way to build within the constraints of safe operation, right? Like the worst thing that's going to happen is you're going to put two pieces of wood together and they're not going to fit. So I, I would like to dismantle that for people. And I also just tell people to try building something with a friend or a family member. It always feels better to do stuff with someone else and they're holding you accountable, but they're also like telling you it's okay, whatever, let's try it again. It, it's so gratifying to see girls in this space helping each other when I can see that barrier like, ooh, I don't want to try this thing for the first time. And then your classmate steps in and is like, here, I'll show you how to do it. So I think that building is also a great thing to do in a communal way with people who you love and trust. We use the the phrase building is bonding, which is sort of silly, but also very true. One principle that you have for the girls' garage is naming the tools and emphasizing that, that you should know the names of the tools that you are working with. Even for me, I remember when I bought my first chainsaw, I was like, yeah, I want that chainsaw right there. And I didn't know anything about chainsaws, but I knew I had a, there's some wood that I had to get rid of. And the guy's like looking at me and he says, are you sure you, you know what to do with this thing? You sure you want this? <laughs> and like, he was like giving me a little bit of a hard time. Like, you're not ready for a chainsaw. And I wish I had read Girls Garage before so I could like know a little bit of basic stuff. But I think that ability to name something is so powerful. Totally, totally. We we have a practice around here that's not, I mean, I, this is going to sound much more like hardcore boot camp than it actually is. But, but often if someone is looking for a tool and they say, give me that thing, we'll say, oh, you got to do push-ups. And then we all do 10 push-ups. We don't force girls to do push-ups. That's not a thing. But there is like the expectation that that we should call things by their name. This is true of humans too. I almost always call girls by their name, not you two, go over there. I just think the ability to name things is a way of seeing and recognizing identity. And that's true of everything in the space, people and tools. And the experience you're describing of walking into a hardware store is part of that same mental barrier. Like, Mm -hmm. fine, I want to go to Home Depot and buy my first drill, but I don't really know what to look at. And there's 10 different drills. How do I know which one to buy? I mean, it's so stifling. And so I I really, I love the, the power that language can give to young women. I remember in graduate school, I was installing my graduate 
exhibition, my thesis exhibition, and I had to install this bench on a concrete floor, and it requires this specific type of screw. And I remember going to the hardware store and saying, I need two and three quarter inch Tapcon masonry screws. And the guy working there looked at me and was like, Okay, they're on aisle five. Uh And it was the first time that someone wasn't like, oh, are you sure that's what you need? Let let me show you. Oh, sweetie, do you need help? And I just, I remember that so clearly. And from that moment on, I I told myself I was always going to know what I needed and I was going to ask for it. And that's true in the hardware store and in life. I I love that story because I would have been like, "Uh, can you get me that screw that's like that big? (laughs) You know, the one that has like, it's like gray, I think. Totally. It's often, this is, I I often have this experience when I'm trying to Google things and you don't even know what to Google. You're like the thing that looks like a this with a this and a that. I mean, it's really hard to put words to tools and hardware. And so in the book, I also tried next to a lot of the tools and hardware, there's a little blue box. That's a fun fact. And some of those fun facts are, are silly. Like next to the drill, it says that Eddie Van Halen used a drill with his electric guitar to make this very weird noise. Other times it's like, did you know that the circular saw was invented by a woman? Um, so I, I've also tried to include information that makes tools feel more like, almost like characters in the book, like mm-hmm. they have their own personality and their own story. And that makes you more interested and more likely to to use the right terminology and to feel a connection to the tools. And I'm learning so much just by reading it, like that space between the head of a screw and threads is called a shank. I was like, I had no idea. I was like, that's so cool. And yeah, the the language is so important. Like when I teach medical students and residents at, at my medical school, you know, we have our own language of identifying body parts and the way we describe uh, pathophysiology. And it's important to have that very specific language and be able to name it. Um, it's it's yeah. very powerful. That's that's so true. It must be very similar in your work. And it it's also a way of identifying a community. If a woman walks in and you know says, oh, I want to volunteer here, and I ask her what she does, and she is telling me about welding, and she says she you know uses a MIG welder and a this, like automatically there's a shared language that brings us closer together. So it's not just about sounding smart or being able to walk into a hardware store. It's also about like as a community of women and girls at Girls Garage, this is a way of us saying this is how we talk to each other. And I just feel like for especially for girls who are so excited about going into engineering or the trades mm-hmm. that this is a way of preparing them not just to be, you know, equipped and, and high skilled, but but to be able to navigate the the social worlds of these industries. Yeah. And I'm kind of curious to know what are your thoughts between physical spaces and creativity? Because I've been a professional student. I've been in school for a very long time and I've been an educator for over a decade. And our classrooms in medical school are very traditional looking type of classrooms. And we, a lot of times you don't have spaces that create the conditions for creativity. And then when I started visiting design studios and architecture spaces and maker spaces, I thought, wow, the space really matters to inspire a new way of thinking. 100%. That This is like the thesis of my life. I really, uh, our, our friend, our mutual colleague, John Kerry, talks yes. about this a lot too, like how space is an indicator of dignity. It tells people how they're valued and how they're seen and how they belong. And I think that's so true. This is ultimately 
why I love architecture, because I think physical space is one of our first cues about our own identities. And when it comes to creativity, I mean, I, I, I went to UC Berkeley, I went to the School of the Art Institute in Chicago and have experienced many studio settings. And there is something about uh, a space that is unscripted, that has you know access to tools, and p- maybe most importantly, access to mentors and instructors who have a mindset uh, that reflects the physical space. That like you can try this thing. If it doesn't work, we're going to do it ten more times. There's going to be feedback from your peers. We're all in it together. There's always a better version. It it really is a way of working in in your work and in your life. I think like the design mentality is so much about hope. And so when spaces feel uplifting and hopeful and like the possibilities are endless, that's really like what I want all spaces to feel like. I think we all know what it feels like when you walk into a space that feels oppressive. Yeah, it it does. And I would get jealous when I would go into spaces more like the ones that you are used to because I have not experienced those spaces in my in my training during medicine and the spaces that I work in, in hospitals and in medical schools. And, and even though we are not uh, designers, but I think having spaces that might look more similar to yours will help us to think more creatively. That is, that is why, where and why I think design is so powerful because it does carve out a space that says anything that happens in here, it's safe for us to fail. And then we go and do it for real and it's going to be better off because we failed in here and not out there. If you could go back 10 years, what would you tell yourself? <laughs> 10 years ago, I was living in North Carolina and I was building... Um, Let's see. It's August. Yeah, I would have been wrapping up construction on the farmer's market with my first class of students. And I would have told myself, this is only the beginning and that things are only going to get bigger and better and that you're doing the best that you can. That was such a hard project in so many ways. It really pushed and stretched me, um, you know, physically, spiritually. And I think I would have loved to have known that that project was a huge undertaking. It was going to be a success and it was going to really like inform everything I would do in the future. That's, that's amazing. And, and during this time, a lot of us are feeling burnt out. How are you uh, replenishing your tank during this time? Wow. I have had so many mood swings. I feel like I'm just, you know, (laughs) every single day who even knows what the emotions are going to be. But I, I feel like the thing that I keep coming back to is joy. And I just try to follow my joy. This morning was our last class for our summer Zoom class with girls. And we had 25 girls. They're all 9 to 13 years old. And we've been working on doing the plan section, elevation, and 3D models of our dream room. And so they showed their models and their drawings today. And, you know, some girls had a swing. This one girl had a frozen yogurt machine. Someone had modeled their stuffed animal sea otter out of clay. And just like the sheer joy in seeing their dreams visualized was just exactly the replenishment that I needed and I think we all needed. So there's so much to be disheartened about right now, so much. And Mm. 
I just try to think about like if I have a finite amount of attention, what am I going to put it to? And I really want to try to put that towards things that bring me joy and things that bring people together in joyful ways. And thank God for the young women in my life who do this naturally and bring so much hope to everything that we do as an organization. I love that. And when we get through this pandemic, if I could visit Girls Garage, I would love to do that. I totally want to see it in person. Yes, you are welcome anytime. Bring some of your colleagues and we can prototype and fail up here in the print shop. Oh, yeah. Well, thanks, Emily, for being on Design Lab. Appreciate it. Thank you so much for hosting this. It's so good to talk to you. Congrats on the book. It's so beautiful. I love it. Thank you so much. I'm really proud of it. And I am excited for girls everywhere to pick it up and take it to the hardware store. Now I'm joined by the producer of Design Lab, Rob Plavisi. Rob and I like to use this time to give a rapid response to the conversation you just heard to discover what inspired us and to think about some takeaways that we can apply to our own lives. Emily Politon, I love her. I've been fanboying over her for years. I, I met her in person last year, but I was a little bit too nervous to express how much I admired her and been inspired by her. So this was this was great just to connect with her. Everything she does is pretty damn inspiring. What was your takeaways from our conversation? I kind of relate to her journey a little bit. I ended up in a very brainy profession, you know, where I sit in front of a desk all day thinking about drugs because I'm a pharmacist. But somehow I've always end up back to creating stuff. And and I love making things and I love building and using my hands. And I'm, I'm really lucky that I've been able to find an outlet for that in a lot of the creative work that I do. And, and to have people overcome that barrier, because there's a definite barrier there that doesn't exist in cooking, for example, like we were talking about. There's this barrier of going to the hardware store and buying some power tools and buying some wood. And because I think there's this language that we have to overcome. There are these stereotypes there that this is for a dude to do. Yeah. And just for a handy guy to do. I mean, you're, you're pretty handy. I'm not. But Well, it makes me realize how lucky I was having mentors my whole life that enabled me to be handy, right? Like my dad taught me how to make things. He would fix everything. Or I had amazing creative instructors and in music and arts when I was a kid that said, hey, you know, you can be creative. Like, you can do this. You're an artist. You're a builder. You have three girls. Do you encourage them to make? Because we're perpetuating gender stereotypes all the time, right? That it's the boys who make and the girls do other stuff. Totally. Um, I bought them a ton of Legos recently because they're like old enough to stop swallowing Legos. <laughs> and they love it. They absolutely love it. And watching them build brings me so much joy. Yeah. And some of these toys for children, especially the toys that require children to build, they're more designed for boys rather than girls. They are. They really are. And some companies do better than others. I recently got this computer that you actually have to build and then you code it by playing a video game. And I let my five-year-old build a little Raspberry Pi computer and she was like wiring it up and everything. And it's amazing, again, how quickly she picked it up and she was so excited about that part of it. And for those listening, if you want to catch more of Emily, the documentary that she was in is called If You Build It. Great documentary. 
And she's also the author of Design Revolution, 100 Products That Empower People, and another book, Tell Them I Built This. Those are all fantastic books. A documentary is great. Highly recommend it. And definitely get Girls Garage, even if you're not a girl and old dudes like us. It is a great, beautiful book. I love it. It's one of my favorite summer pandemic reading books. I hope you enjoyed our conversation. You can follow Emily on Twitter at Emily Pilliton, and you can find Girls Garage on Twitter and Instagram. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Design Lab. And please, please subscribe, rate, get feedback to the podcast on whatever platform you use to listen. This helps us out so much. I'm your host, Bon Koo. Rob Puglisi produced this episode. Our theme music was created by the amazing Emmanuel Houston. See you next week. <laughs>